Amen. You, uh, please remain standing if you're able, and let's turn to Genesis 30, 33 once again. We'll read the entire uh, chapter as we did last week. Uh, we'll focus more on the end of the chapter this week. Genesis 33. Hear God's word. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant." Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant. And I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padanaram. And he camped before the city and before the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, 
He bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. We're picking up here right where we left off uh, last week. Jacob and Esau have now uh, met and they've reconciled. And that was a total surprise to Jacob to finally meet Esau and find that he was not in a, uh, a murderous mood. He was not holding a grudge anymore toward Jacob. Instead, uh, he ran to meet him, ran to meet Jacob, hugged him, kissed him. They hugged and wept. It was a beautiful reconciliation. And what a relief it must have been for Jacob, who was so fearful of this meeting. Esau turned out to be just a picture of graciousness. He even declined uh, repeatedly to accept these gifts from Jacob. Wave after wave of livestock that Jacob sent before him. And yet Jacob kept insisting that Esau take them, and finally he did accept them. But what a, what a joyous scene this must have been. What a happy time this was for the whole family. They were expecting something very different. They were expecting Esau, the, the murderer, the man who was bent on killing Jacob, and instead they find this man acting very graciously, acting very forgiving of his brother. Actually, I don't know if you uh, noticed the similarity, but Esau looks a lot like the father in the story of the prodigal son here in this scene. He's not hesitant at all. He's overjoyed at the prospect of reconciliation with his scheming, rascally brother who did him such wrong. He runs to meet him, embraces him, throws his arms around his neck, and kissed him. He was so happy to be reconciled. God had clearly done a work in this man, in Esau. And we don't know. He may not have been regenerated. We really don't have any reason to think that he um, was made alive spiritually here. But God had done something in this man. He had changed his mind. God had answered Jacob's prayer. Remember, Jacob had prayed to the Lord to save him from the hand of Esau. And God did that. He softened Esau's heart. Look at how Esau just shows such kindness and such a forgiving spirit here. I think he probably puts many of us to shame. He's so ready to reconcile, ready to forgive, 
this other, otherwise unspiritual man seems to show a beautiful picture of God's character here in this way. He's so gracious, so forgiving. Of course, this is the kind of character that should be seen in all our lives if we are God's people. May the Lord be at work in us in that way, in a powerful way, to form us and to change us and to fill us with the fruit of his spirit, forming his character in us. Now look for a minute at the way Jacob uh, pleads here with Esau to accept his gift. He really doesn't want to take no for an answer. But first it looks like Jacob is maybe trying to um, buy Esau off, to, uh, to put it bluntly. Just insists that Esau receive this gift, but he persists in that even after he knows that Esau's at peace with him, even after he knows Esau's not going to harm him, Jacob persists in telling him to take these gifts. Please accept this gift from me. He isn't trying to buy Esau's favor. He's saying, Esau, I am so glad that I've found favor in your eyes, and I realize that God has done this. You're not being gracious to me because I've given you all these gifts. It's because of God's grace that has been at work. He knows God has answered his prayer. But he wants Esau to accept the gifts as gifts of his gratitude. He's grateful to God. He knows God has so kindly taken care of him. He's so graciously provided in this dangerous situation. It's a beautiful thing we see there. He's not trying to buy Esau off. He gives these gifts in gratitude to God because he sees how God has taken care of him, how God has richly blessed him. You know, that's the pattern for our giving. That's how we are to give to God today. We give because he has given so richly to us. We should give generously of our resources, our time, our talents, not in order to gain favor with God, but because we already have God's favor as a gift of His grace through Jesus Christ. He has freely given us a reconciled relationship to Himself in Christ. And because of that, because we have that good, safe relationship with God, that good standing with Him, we can feel free to worship Him and to give to him freely out of the abundance that he's given to us. That's functioning here. He realized the Lord had been so good to him. He's overflowing with gratitude, and he wants to give in return. 
May God open our eyes in that way to how greatly that he has blessed us and provided for us in spiritual things and in earthly temporal things as well. He has been so good to us. He's given so much to us. And may knowing that cause us to overflow with gratitude to him in all areas of our lives. And in verse 12, then, we see Esau's gracious spirit again. He wants uh, to spend more time with Jacob and his family. He offered to take them to his home in Seir. That's beautiful. Esau wants Jacob to come home with him. But Jacob declines this offer. Now you have to appreciate, first of all, the offer. You have to appreciate Esau's graciousness and his desire to reconnect with his brother and to have uh, uh, a good relationship with him and strengthen that relationship. He wanted to continue enjoying reconciliation with Jacob. That's so good. It's beautiful. But there were some good reasons that Jacob had to decline this offer. For one, Seir was outside of the promised land. God had called Jacob to return to the promised land. And so for Jacob to be diverted like that, to go to Seir, would have been disobeying God's word. There's a second reason he should have declined. He is the head of the covenant, Jacob is. The covenant line flows through him. But Esau has no part in that covenant. And so Jacob really has no business dwelling in close fellowship with Esau and with his people. Yes, he wanted to reconcile with him, and uh, it seems clear God wanted that reconciliation for them. He wanted them to have peace, but there's no real fellowship between them, no spiritual fellowship. There's no fellowship between light and darkness, is there? It's the same in every age for God's people. We don't have fellowship with those who have no fellowship with God. And that's not just a matter of trying to hold yourself aloof from people who don't know the Lord. It's just a reality. There's no spiritual communion with people who don't have communion with God. Now, it might have been a real temptation for Jacob to settle down and live near to Esau if he had gone on to Seir. And commentators, many of them think that's exactly what Esau is suggesting here. Not just a quick visit, not just, hey, come, let's hang out for a while, reconnect, but rather it was a desire for 
Jacob to come and settle with him. And that was a temptation that Jacob just had to say no to. Again, it would have been disobedience to the Lord. To think about that matter of trying to have communion with people who are not in communion with the Lord. There can be a very unhealthy spiritual influence that uh, unbelieving people can have on you as a believer, right? Whether it's family or not, and uh, sadly, often for most of us, uh, many of our family members are like this, far from God. They don't know the Lord. And we have to resist the temptation to get too close to people who are not close to the Lord, who are not reconciled to the Lord. That's not good for us spiritually. People who don't share our faith in God. Now, it's not that you need to shun uh, unbelievers or that you should stay away from them completely. That's certainly not the picture uh, Scripture gives us. No, you ought to seek to love them. You ought to seek to be very kind to them. Do all you can to show them the love of Christ, but in a very real sense, you do need to keep your distance. There is to be a separation between God's people and the people of the world. It's a spiritual separation. It's not even something that... um, you need to put in place. It's something that God puts in place the moment he brings you to salvation in Christ. There is that separation that exists from that moment forward. You've crossed the lines. You don't belong to the darkness any longer. You belong to the light. That separation is established by God through the new birth, and you and I need to recognize that, and we need to live it out You live by faith in the Son of God, and you seek to live in obedience to God and His Word. The unbeliever doesn't do any of those things. The unbeliever lives by a whole other standard. The unbeliever doesn't recognize God's Word and the authority of it. doesn't recognize the gospel as the only way of salvation. You do. And you are seeking to walk in the light. They walk in the darkness. That's just reality. It's inescapable. Light has no close fellowship with darkness. You just can't. You should try to have peaceful relationships, good relationships with unbelievers in your life and pray for them and seek to, again, show them the love of Christ But you can't let those be your closest relationships. There's no real spiritual fellowship there. You should seek to have peace with them, like Jacob sought here. Seek to maintain those relationships and have a good godly influence on them. But if you belong to the Lord and they don't, there is that big chasm between you spiritually. And you can't pretend it isn't there.
you do so to your own hurt. The Lord has put it there. As a believer, your fellowship, your real fellowship is with God and with God's people. And with the people whose home is in heaven. May the Lord give us wisdom to embrace that fellowship of the saints while also seeking to love and pray for those who don't know the Lord. Pray that the Lord might change that. Pray that the Lord might draw them into real union and communion with himself and with us. Well, that was going on here between these two, Jacob and Esau, but sadly, Jacob doesn't, doesn't really express himself in an honest way with Esau here. He's not honest. He could have come right out and said, Esau, the Lord called me, the Lord commanded me to go back to the promised land. And so I can't come with you. I don't know why he didn't do that. It would have been nice to see that kind of honesty, truthfulness, and faithful witness here from Jacob. But instead, uh, it seems he's reverted, at least uh, uh, for a time here, back to his old ways of feeling like he needed to be deceitful. And so he concocts this deceitful story to get out of going with Esau. He says all those things about the little children and the young animals. They can't handle um, a hard uh, trip like that. I can't drive them so hard. They'll die. And of course, he's exaggerating. But then he slips into downright deceit when he tells Esau, let my Lord go on ahead of your servant. I'll move slowly. Basically, he says, go ahead, Esau. I'll be right behind you. I'll catch up. But he had no intention of doing that. It was a lie. He immediately turned in the opposite direction and, and headed off on his way. It's sad to see that. It's sad to see this man lying here. He's come such a long way. He's had such uh, high points since the old days. It's really shocking to see him being so deceitful at this point. And he just experienced, think of it, he just experienced God's Grace, God's saving grace in such a profound way, God saved him out of the hand of Esau. This could have gone so bad for him, and God delivered him. You'd expect better from Jacob here, but then again, he's a lot like us, isn't he? That's sort of how it is with us. We're going along, doing well, growing, and then all of a sudden, we crash back to earth with some sin. 
Jacob is now called Israel, but he's still Jacob, the deceiver. He's a saint and a sinner. You see the fruit of the Spirit in his life, sometimes so clearly, but then here you see the weeds of the flesh. And that's all of us, too, as believers. Justified and yet still sinful. Free from sin's condemnation through the blood of Christ, but still not free from sin's presence. It's all too present in our lives. And we give in to it all too much. May God cause us to, to hate our sin more and more, our remaining sin, until that day that he will take it away completely. Long for that day when you and I will sin no more. Well, even though Jacob did this in the wrong way, avoiding going to Seir, he did it nonetheless. It would have been direct disobedience to God to go there. But even so, he still wasn't doing the right thing. He failed to follow through in real obedience to God. His obedience was far from full here. Look at verses 17 to 20. First, Jacob goes to Sukkoth, where he built a place for himself. He built a house for himself, and he made shelters for his livestock. Then he moved on a bit further to Shechem, and we know that he settled there for some time. He bought land there, but this was not good. Listen to Derek Kidner's comments. Kidner writes, Shechem offered Jacob the attractions of a compromise. His summons from God was to go to Bethel. But Shechem was about a day's journey short of Bethel. But it stood attractively at the crossroads of trade. And the next chapter in Genesis will show the cost of Jacob settling at Shechem. He paid that cost. It seemed like a good idea. He did build an altar there to the Lord, and he gave it a fine-sounding name, El Elohe Israel. The name means the mighty creator God is the God of Israel. Now, that was a nice religious act. But God had not called him to do that in that place. And that nice religious act was no substitute for obedience. It was compromise. He was whitewashing his disobedience. And it would cost him. It would cost Jacob and his family dearly. 
the proper response to the Lord would have been obedience, full obedience. Partial obedience is no obedience. It's displeasing to God, and as we will see, it can be very dangerous. If you call your child who's out in the street to get out of that street because there's a truck coming, what happens if he or she only moves part of the way out of the street? Partial obedience can have horrible consequences. Our health, our happiness, our blessedness is very much tied to our obedience. Certainly in our relationship with God, that's true. And that's not legalism to say that. It is just reality. God calls us to love him by obeying him. And he certainly loves us too much to let us be happy in sin. Now Christ has died for us to forgive us, to forgive all our sins, to cleanse us, to clothe us with his perfect righteousness. We have that righteousness in God's sight now. Reckon to our account. The righteousness of Christ is ours. When he looks upon us, he sees us clothed in Christ. And he did this to bring us into a good, safe, loving, eternal relationship with God forever. But now within that relationship, God calls us to live in obedience to him. not under threat of hell, not under threat of losing our salvation. No, once we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, that threat of condemnation is over. We can't lose our salvation, but we can lose our happiness in salvation. We can't lose our union with Christ, but we can harm our communion with Christ. And that's a miserable way to live. Imagine living in uh, a marriage that you sabotage by your actions, and the marriage stands... The partner doesn't leave you, but you've devastated it, destroyed it by your actions. What kind of miserable time would you be having in that relationship? That'd be a miserable way to live. Thankfully, God won't let his children live that way. He won't let us be happy in ongoing disobedience. He'll work in our lives to chasten us to correct us, to call us to obedience, and to bring us to obedience. But remember, when he does that, he does it in love. 
He does it because he loves us. He does it for our good. He does it to bring us back into the way that is good, the way that is holy, the way that will make us happy in communion with him. When you think about it that way, that is even more reason for us to just thank and praise the Lord. We're so blessed to have a God who loves us so much. He loves us far too much to let us go in our sin. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord and our God, help us, we pray. Help us to to live at peace with all men like we see Jacob trying to do here with his brother. But teach us that our only true fellowship is with you and with your children. We do pray that you would have mercy and save our loved ones, our lost friends and um, people around us. We long to have them be in saving union and communion with you so that we then could have fellowship with them like John says. Lord, keep on with your good work of sanctifying us. Also, we confess that we don't have the power ourselves to obey you fully. We need your grace to change us. We thank you that you give that grace. You give power to those who have no power. With the Spirit of Christ within us, by your grace we can uh, obey you. You've enabled us to make uh, a beginning of new obedience. And so we look to you for that grace. Forgive us where we fail, Lord, and we pray that you would renew us and strengthen us each day to walk with you and to live for you and that blessed, glorious relationship that you've given to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.